0: The triumphant pilots were tired and stiff and very thirsty. It turned out that one of their ground crew, in a moment of excited distraction, had left their canteens filled with soapy water, so they had had nothing to drink for two days. Otherwise, the flight was a great success, great enough to be the main story in the New York Times on Good Friday, April 15th. Across three columns, the headline declared, Flyers set record of 51 hours in air day and night without food or water, land-worn but eager for Paris flight. They had flown 4,100 miles, 500 miles more than the distance from New York to Paris. Just as significantly, they had managed to get airborne with 375 gallons of fuel, an enormous load for the time, and had used up just 1,200 feet of runway to do so. All this was extremely encouraging for those who wished to fly the Atlantic. And in the spring of 1927, there were many, like Chamberlain and Acosta, who most assuredly did. By a curiously ironic twist, the event that left America far behind the rest of the world in aviation was the very one that assured its dominance in so many other spheres the First World War. Before 1914, airplanes barely featured in military thinking. The French Air Corps, with three dozen planes, was larger than all the other air forces in the world put together. Germany, Britain, Italy, Russia, Japan, and Austria all had no more than four planes in their fleets. The United States had just two. But with the outbreak of fighting, military commanders quickly saw how useful planes could be. For monitoring enemy troop movements, for directing artillery fire, and above all, for providing a new direction and manner in which to kill people. In the early days, bombs often were nothing more than wine bottles filled with gasoline or kerosene, with a simple detonator attached, though a few pilots threw hand grenades, and some for a time dropped specially made darts called flechettes, which could pierce a helmet or otherwise bring pain and consternation to those in the trenches below. As always, where killing is involved, technological progress was swift, and by 1918 aerial bombs of up to 2,200 pounds were being dropped. Germany alone rained down a million individual bombs, some 27,000 tons of explosives, in the course of the war. Bombing was not terribly accurate. A bomb dropped from 10,000 feet rarely hit its target and often missed by half a mile or more. But the psychological effect, wherever a large bomb fell, was considerable. Heavy bomb loads required planes of ever greater size and power, which in turn spurred the development of swifter, nimbler fighter craft to defend or attack them, which in further turn produced the celebrated dogfights that fired the imaginations of schoolboys and set the tone for aviation for a generation to come. The air war produced an insatiable need for planes. In four years, the four main combatant nations spent one billion dollars, a staggering sum, nearly all borrowed from America, on their air fleets, from almost nothing France, in four years, built up an aircraft industry that employed nearly 200,000 people and produced some 70,000 planes. Britain built 55,000 planes, Germany 48,000, and Italy 20,000. Quite an advance, bearing in mind that only a few years earlier, the entire world aviation industry consisted of two brothers in a bicycle shop in Ohio. Up to 1914, the total number of people in the world who had been killed in airplanes was about a hundred. Now men died in their thousands. By the spring of 1917, the life expectancy of a British pilot was put at eight days. Altogether, between 30,000 and 40,000 fliers were killed or injured to the point of incapacity in four years. Training was not a great deal safer than combat. At least 15,000 men were killed or invalided in accidents in flight schools. American flyers were particularly disadvantaged. When the United States entered the war in April 1917, not a single American military official had ever even seen a fighter aircraft, much less commanded one. When the explorer Hiram Bingham, discoverer of Machu Picchu, but now a middle-aged professor at Yale, offered himself as an instructor, the Army made him a lieutenant colonel and put him in charge of the whole training program, Not because he had useful experience, he didn't, but simply because he knew how to fly a plane. Many new pilots were taught by instructors who had only just been taught themselves.